this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath john lee a former security chief of hong kong has been appointed as the city's new chief executive he will replace the current leader carry lam on july 1st known to be a pro beijing administrator he oversaw the crackdown on pro democracy protests in 2019 and although he is not very popular a 1500 member committee packed with pro beijing members overwhelmingly voted for him his appointment comes at a significant time in hong kong's history for this year marks 25 years since hong kong was handed over by the british to china under the broad principle of one country two systems so what does john lee's term mean for the future of civil liberties in hong kong and what is the mood like in the city in the year of the 25th anniversary of the handover in this episode of in focus we talk about these questions and more with anand krishnan the hindu's china correspondent anand thank you so much for joining us thank you so much sampath anand so we have this new chief executive in john lee what has been the general public reaction to his appointment i don't know if you should call it appointment or election or nomination or what exactly it is yeah that's a good question in the sense that i was i was also sort of wrestling with what to call it and i think that we really i mean it's officially called an election but it's impossible to actually call it an election because he was the only candidate so i, I suppose you could call it an appointment as you said would be more accurate i think that the best way to kind of describe the mood in hong kong to be quite honest it's just that people are not very interested in this election and i think that it's the least interested that people in hong kong have ever been in terms of who their next leader was going to be just to give listeners an idea how the system actually works the chief executive is the highest sort of ranking official in hong kong and historically the chief executive has never been voted for directly by the people of hong kong so the second big institution that's important to remember is the legislative council the legislative council is something that people can actually vote for in the past they could vote for 35 out of the 70 members of the legislative council but all of that kind of changed when beijing responding to these protests that we saw in 2019 completely overhauled the electoral system the chief executive is still kind of selected by a group of around 1500 people but now they've even reduced the number of legislative members who can be directly elected and when they had the elections recently for the legislative council it was the lowest turnout in history so that kind of reflects to you sampath in terms of the level of interest in the political process in hong kong it used to at one point be kind of a lively election where you had usually at least two candidates or more but the fact that beijing intervened changed the electoral system change the way the legislative council works and on top of that ensure there's only one person standing for election i think honestly people just kind of saw this as a fait accompli and there was not much interest in what happened right so coming back to this guy uh, john lee we know when we have seen media reports that he has been sanctioned by the us and he's now going to be heading what is still a very important commercial hub hub within the interconnected global economy so what exactly is john lee's background and why was he sanctioned so it isn't only uh, john lee of course the chief executive elect who was sanctioned even the current chief executive carry lam was sanctioned and they were all sanctioned by the us during this whole sort of crackdown on hong kong 
and, and after the passing of this major national security law. And the national security law that was passed in 2020 was, again, a response to the 2019 protests. And what it really did was it essentially kind of just kneecapped a lot of the democratic systems and processes that kind of distinguished Hong Kong from the mainland under the one country, two systems model that has been in place since it came back to China in 1997. So under the model, the two biggest sort of differences were the fact that there was actually a free press in Hong Kong, democratic freedoms that protected the free press, and most importantly as well, an independent judiciary. And all of this, of course, you don't have in the mainland where it's one party ruled and the Communist Party kind of controls most of the systems and institutions. And I think that's really changed with this passing of the national security law and which led to John Lee being sanctioned and Carrie Lam being sanctioned as well. In, t- in terms of what difference that would make, uh, Carrie Lam, she kind of raised eyebrows when she half seriously pointed out that she was she did have access to a bank account because of the sanctions. So she was getting paid her salary in cash. It should be noted here that Hong Kong civil servants are actually among the most highly paid civil servants in the planet. So probably the only problem John Lee is going to have from being sanctioned is his very large salary is going to be paid to him either in cash or to small banks. But on a serious note, it just goes to show in terms of how Hong Kong has evolved in the last two years after the passing of the national security law, how tightly controlled it now is. And Beijing pretty much now decides everything in Hong Kong. Uh, To a degree, you might think it always did, because Hong Kong is a part of China. But to be fair, its approach was largely hands-off until 2020. But in the last two years, it's been a completely different change from what you saw from 1997 onwards. Right. So you made this very interesting point that there were two aspects in which Hong Kong was very different from mainland China in terms of entire framework of two systems one country kind of a thing and one you one of them you said was free press and the other is independent judiciary and if you look at the the third element which is the legislature and you know an actual participative democracy model in 2007 china under hu jintao had promised that from 2017 the people of hong kong can directly elect their chief executive so having made this commitment what changed in the intervening period that it has to go back and now we have a scenario where just there's just one candidate and he's elected by pro beating committee so what what made china change its stand on this so in a way sampath it was a kind of a series of unfortunate sort of events that led to this as you correctly said the idea was to have universal suffrage by 2017 and actually that's what beijing did offer in 2014 so in 2014 beijing came out with this proposal saying that for the first time in 2017, the chief executive would be elected by the people of Hong Kong. But what Beijing did add was that it would have the final say in the sense that anyone could stand for elections, but Beijing would have to approve them. And I think the idea why they said that was, of course, they didn't want someone who they believed was, say, from one of the really most, you know, strong pro-democracy parties that might, you know, even question uh, Hong Kong's existence as a part of China. They, and for Beijing, that's, of course, a bottom line. So they wanted someone who they felt they'd be comfortable with. So what they said was there would be universal suffrage and chief executive elected from 2017. But, of course, it came with that catch. Now, the pro-democracy parties in Hong Kong immediately rejected that 2014 offer. And eventually that led to this huge widespread protest in Hong Kong back then, which we saw as, the, as called as the Umbrella Movement. 
And then finally, that was shelved. And ultimately, when the chief executive election happened in 2017, when Carrie Lam was chosen, it was, again, following the same process of a committee pretty much choosing her. And I think that 2014 was in that sense a turning point. And when we look back now, I think it's honestly, we could argue that if, say, the pro-democracy parties of Hong Kong had accepted Beijing's proposal in 2014, perhaps Hong Kong would have been in a better situation today. And the, the offer in 2014 as well was a part of a, a kind of a long-term plan that they that they had sort of put forward. The first step was having the chief executive being chosen by the people of Hong Kong, although Beijing would have the final say. And the second was eventually that the people would also be able to directly elect the members of the Legislative Council. In the past system, only 35 out of the 70 members were elected and the remaining 35 were nominated. But now I think the biggest change, Ampad, the first, of course, was the umbrella movement protests, which really sort of engaged the youth in Hong Kong in a big way and got a lot of people interested in politics and in democracy. And I think that without the umbrella movement happening back then, you wouldn't have had this mass uprising in 2019, which was triggered by Carrie Lam trying to pass an an extradition law that would have made it possible for people to be extradited from Hong Kong to the mainland. And that led to months of protests and violence in 2019, which in turn led to the passing of the national security law as well as the electoral reform. So it was really a chain of events, Sampa, that goes back to what you said, the promise of having elections in 2017 and the fact that Beijing's offer in 2014 was rejected. And so you finally now ended up in a situation following the electoral reform of last year, where actually, truth be told, perhaps the case could, could have been made that Hong Kong's demo, pro-democracy parties would have been better off had they accepted that offer than rejecting it. Right. Now, according to the 1997 handover agreement, these various civil liberties under the two systems framework, such as free speech rights and right to peaceful assembly and so on, they were meant to be preserved at least till 2047. So Lee's election, you know, and, and given his background as someone who has supervised the crackdown on pro-democracy protests, does his election mean definitive end to this two-system model whereby Hong Kong will then get absorbed, so to speak, into the mainland Chinese system in terms of, you know, the same kind of non-independent judiciary and, you know, completely eroded civil liberties? I think, Sampa, that even without John Lee's election, it kind of happened with the passing of the national security law by Beijing. And why I say that is that the national security law was something that of a scale that had never been passed before. And what it does was it really kind of empowers the security establishment in Hong Kong through its very vague and broad definitions of what is subversion, uh, what is secession. And we've already seen a huge change in the climate of Hong Kong since the passing of the national security law, you've had a lot of independent media houses shut down. You've had a couple of major newspaper offices raided, and you've had pro-democracy politicians and activists and even some journalists arrested, accused of sedition. So I think the national security law was a really big turning point. You can really look at Hong Kong and Hong Kong's recent political history as a pre and post uh, national security law NSL phase. And I think the pre-NSL phase, all things considered, I even I on my many visits here through the years from 2014 to even 2018 and 2019, I would hear from 
even for democracy politicians, that they were frustrated by the slow introduction of political reforms. But on the other hand, I think a lot of them were, in a sense, also surprised by the fact that post-1997, one country, two systems really kind of was intact. If you look, as you, if you look at some of the institutions that you pointed out, like the judiciary or the free press of Hong Kong or the right to protest, for instance, even post-1997, you still had the annual June 4th Tiananmen Square Memorial in Victoria Park here in Hong Kong. And you had all of these things that kind of distinguished Hong Kong from the mainland, the pre-national security law phase. So I think once the law was passed, it was very clear that there was going to be a sea change. And I think that regardless of who was going to be in charge, whether it was John Lee, who, as you mentioned, is a former police officer and a former head of security, or whether it was any other politician, I think the, the biggest change is Beijing now calls the shots. And something that I often hear from people in Hong Kong now is that the real power, of course, the chief executive is tasked with the administration of Hong Kong, but the real political power is still lies with the mainland affairs office in Hong Kong, which in the past really never involved itself very much in politics of Hong Kong. But I think increasingly the mainland affairs office here is, some may argue, calling the shots as much as the chief executive does. Right. And coming to this anniversary aspect, I mean, I mean they, the handover happened in 1997 and this is 2022. So we have the 25th anniversary of the handover falling this year. I don't know if there have been lots of big celebrations which have been lined up about the public mood with regard to this memorial, which is sort of commemorative occasion as it were is. So how do you take stock and how does uh, the general Hong Konger look at this anniversary uh, thing when I mean, it's like a big moment? It, one would imagine it's a big moment for any kind of a person who's been living there for a long time. No, absolutely. And I'm sure that Beijing will be celebrating it in a, in a big way. And, and, and a senior official from China is likely to come here for July 1st. Because of the COVID situation in China, the word is it might not be Xi Jinping, that he might not actually come to Hong Kong, even though it's such a big anniversary. But just to give some context, Sampath, I think celebratory would be the farthest possible description of the mood in Hong Kong only because of how difficult the last two years have been. And in that sense, I think for ordinary people, there isn't much to celebrate, both because of COVID, the, the economic situation, as well as, I think, the changed political environment. And when you look at all these three issues, it really hasn't been a very happy time for Hong Kong. If we can briefly look at all three of them, I think the, the political climate obviously changed dramatically after the protest movement in 2019 really got a lot of young people involved, but then it was clamped down on with the national security legislation. In terms of COVID, Hong Kong actually did very well for, for the first two years. It only had 200 deaths uh, throughout 2020 and 2021, only about 11,000, 12,000 cases because they had handled it very efficiently. But then the problem was when you had uh, the Omicron variant the healthcare system really couldn't cope with, its, with what has been called its zero COVID approach. And all these two years of, you know, of ensuring normalcy within Hong Kong, but coming at an economic cost because Hong Kong is supposed to be a financial center for many small businesses here. They also depended a lot on tourism. They lost all of that for two years. And now with all of that sacrifice for two years, people found that in the first few months of this year, 2022, you had the Omicron wave in Hong Kong lead to close to 10,000 deaths, and especially among elderly, unvaccinated Hong Kongers. And I think there's a lot of frustration now in terms of how 
people felt they sacrificed for two years and at the end of it now, they were still left with a, with a very sort of painful wave. And, and Hong Kong still hasn't really fully opened to the world because it's in, in some ways emblematic of the fact that it's caught between trying to be Asia's financial center while at the same time trying to answer to what the mainland expects. So you still have a system where any arrival into Hong Kong has to do mandatory quarantine, even though the time has been reduced to seven days. That keeps a lot of tourists away. That keeps a lot of foreign business people away. So I think economy-wise as well, the mood is very downbeat in Hong Kong. They still haven't recovered, I think, from two very difficult years. They've also been dealing with a lot of people leaving, moving to the UK, some moving to Singapore. So if you look at all three fronts, Sampath, if you look at COVID, the economy and the political system, the 25-year anniversary is, isn't really coming at the, at the right time. If you, if you were the Hong Kong government and trying to celebrate it in a big way, I think that John Lee has made it very clear that his priority is going to be fixing the economy. And I would expect that as he gets to work in the next one or two months, his focus would be probably more on that rather than on this anniversary per se. Right. And so you spoke, you referred to people leaving Hong Kong because of, you know, various COVID-related restrictions and the economy not doing well. But is there also any trend or any kind of wave maybe that you've seen of professionals and businesses planning to exit because of the changing political environment? Because, I mean, we don't, of course, China itself is an authoritarian state and it's an international economic powerhouse. But in terms of looking at what is happening within Hong Kong, which is used to a business environment with a liberal uh, carapace, so to speak. With that changing, do you see any kind of a change of mind among professionals and businesses who've been there who want to leave because of the erosion of the liberal democratic ethos? It's a mixed picture, Sampat. In the conversations I've had with people in the last few weeks and months in Hong Kong, in a range of sectors, I think there is a partial sort of phenomenon of people moving out. Some companies mm-hmm. are relocating their regional bases to Singapore. Some Hong Kongers are moving to the UK. More, These are more young Hong Kongers who are looking for jobs and the like because the UK government has offered them a path to immigrate. But I should sort of, in terms of looking at the bigger picture, what I also hear from a lot of companies is that the fact of the matter is Hong Kong is, kind of, has, is still unique in terms of offering this gateway to China and the China market. And even despite COVID and despite all the restrictions, A lot of foreign companies still feel there's money to be made in China. They still have factories in China. They still have businesses in China. A lot of mainland Chinese companies have big offices in Hong Kong. So in that sense, I think Hong Kong's status as a portal or a gateway to China, despite all the erosions you're seeing, whether it's in the judicial process or whether in the political environment, I think that will still continue. And because of that, you're still going to have banks that are going to be present here who are servicing, whether they're doing deals in China or catering to Chinese companies. I think that kind of business is still going to attract a lot of people here. But I think going forward for the next few months, uh, the big sort of dilemma that John Lee is facing, and I think it's come through in his speeches that he's made since the election, which is balancing Hong Kong's status as an international hub, as well as the growing integration with the mainland that you're seeing. And it's a very difficult balancing act, especially because Xi Jinping has been insisting on zero COVID for the mainland. Now, they've been discussing a bubble between Hong Kong and the mainland for two years now because you have people in Hong Kong who have families in in next door Shenzhen or they have businesses in neighboring Guangdong. 
and they haven't been able to travel across the border for two years. And literally, you would have people going across every day. And that has come to a complete standstill with huge economic costs. But the problem is, for John Lee, opening to the mainland would mean shutting down all international travel, because that's what China expects, because it's following zero COVID. It's a very difficult choice. And Hong Kong was unable to make that choice. The choice was kind of made for Hong Kong when the Omicron wave kind of overran its healthcare system. And that led to the mainland making sure that the borders were still going to be shut. And because of that, Hong Kong is partially open to the world. The frustration that foreign companies have is that they still haven't fully opened up to the world. What they want, what foreign businesses want, is Hong Kong to stop mandatory quarantines, to stop banning flights because of COVID, and to completely open up. But John Lee and the current Carrie Lam administration have been kind of reluctant to do that because they still want the mainland to be happy with their COVID control measures. And the, the sad, unfortunate result of all of that is it's kind of been left with the worst of both worlds where they have COVID control measures in place, yet they've suffered lots of deaths, unlike the mainland, and they still remain somewhat isolated from the rest of the world. So this is a very difficult dilemma and balancing act that John Lee has to face. And I would think that given that returning to zero COVID is so, is so difficult for Hong Kong at the moment, that probably the only thing that you will have to do is actually open up to the world again. Right. This balancing act indeed is is a very interesting dilemma for John Lee to handle. And it'll be it'll be sort of, you know, I'm curious to know how he's going to handle that. But by the way, I read somewhere that he was actually a British citizen and then he gave it up. Is that is that correct about John Lee? I think with, uh, it was quite common for a lot of people who were born uh, pre-1997, including a lot of Indians in Hong Kong as well, since who were born here when it was a British colony. They had British passports. And what happened after the handover in 1997 is many people sort of gave that in and assumed Chinese nationality. And China doesn't really recognize dual nationality, so you can't be a citizen of both. So that was something that was quite common at the time, pre-handover and post-1997. So post-1997, uh, suppose somebody was born before 1997 and they had a British uh, citizenship. So they can't continue to stay and live and work in Hong Kong on that citizenship. Do they necessarily have to become Chinese nationals or you have a Hong Kong citizenship, which is different? Uh, this was an interesting sort of uh, situation for people in Hong Kong where you had a, a distinction made between people who were Chinese, as well as you had, of course, British expats and you had even Indians who were present in Hong Kong. And I think uh, all of the three cases were handled in, in different and interesting ways where some people receive Chinese nationality passports. And I was recently speaking to an Indian family who've been here for generations, and they were telling me how, you know, there were actually some Indians in Hong Kong who had been living here for a very long period of time. And post-1997, even they had applied to get Chinese passports, and since that was the only option that they had. And at that point of time, they weren't being given British passports, so they were actually stateless. They were waiting for Chinese passports. They hadn't been given any British identity. But I think that it took a long time for them to actually even recognize that there were non-ethnic Chinese in Hong Kong who were Chinese nationals by virtue of living here. And I think that's, that's begun to change. But it's just one of the complications that arose from Hong Kong's status pre-1997, when it was an international city. It had people from all over the world living here. And of course, post-1997, when it returned to China. So there is no Hong Kong citizenship as such, is it? Right. Since Hong Kong is a part of China, of course, so people have Hong Kong identify have Hong Kong IDs. They can travel to the mainland with with special permits that they have. 
and so they so they definitely have a different it's a it's a different category to what you'd be if you were mainland Chinese passport holder. But of course, it's, it's at the end of the day a part of China. So you, if you are a Hong Kong national, so to speak, you have to be a Chinese. Your passport will have to be either Chinese or uh, nothing. No, I should clarify something. There's nothing as a as a there's a HKSAR passport. It's a passport issued by the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region. So it is looks different from a mainland Chinese passport, and it comes with different privileges as a Hong Kong SAR issued passport holder. You can travel to far more countries around the world uh, than you would if you were a mainland China issued passport holder. So there are certainly two different categories of of passports. Okay, I'm sorry for this digression because I found it really fascinating. You know, because you have this handover, and then now you've got this increasing absorption into the you know. This gravitational pull of this Chinese state, which is sort of distorting, you know, the various dynamics which were there in Hong Kong for so many years. And for me, what I found most fascinating was among the Indian population here as well, who were caught in the midst of all of this. So because they were trying to get passports, which I mentioned, HKSAR of the PRC passports, which is passports, Hong Kong passports that's what we shoot to Chinese here. And for a lot of time, Indians here were kind of stateless. They couldn't get this HKSAR China passport. They couldn't get a British passport. They weren't given a, there was another sort of category called BNOs, which is a British national overseas. So some of the English people who were living in Hong Kong were allowed to get that, but Indians were kind of caught in the middle of, of all of this. And I think finally it took some time, but I think uh, there, there are a lot of Indians now who have Hong Kong SAR passports. And I'd say a lot of the Indian business community here does have uh, Hong Kong passports. But that was something that they really had to resolve in the first few years of the handover when there was so much uncertainty, actually. And you had a lot of people leave Hong Kong in 1997, including a lot of Indians leave because they were kind of very concerned about what would happen to Hong Kong when it came back to China. The big Indian business houses mostly stayed back here because they felt that it was which is a huge business opportunity in terms of opening up to the mainland. And But at the same time, you did have a big exodus in 1997. And I would say when you look at the 25-year anniversary, ironically, Sampath, there's another, another kind of exodus happening 25 years on. And probably the biggest exodus we've seen since 1997 because of a combination of COVID, a combination of the national security law, a combination of the travel restrictions. So in, in a strange way, the 25-year anniversary is mirroring what we saw in 1997. Right. That's a very intriguing parallel indeed. I mean, this COVID plus economy and the whole securitization of the administration of Hong Kong is, I think, something which many people are worried about worried about, and probably, you know, they will continue to take calls on whether to stay on for the business opportunities or to withdraw. And we should probably come back to it at some point in the future again. Thank you so much, uh, Anand, for sharing your thoughts on this issue. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Sampath. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.